Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. And uh, for me, at least, uh, what I kind of want to do is, is, is over the last few years, we've been talking and working through a lot of different things, um, intimacy with Jesus, um, faithfulness, uh, discipleship, all of these things. And, 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 I, and I, today, I want to maybe help create more of a framework to understand who we are and what God is doing, and also how we can successfully be obedient to him as he calls us to move forward. So today I feel like is really, really, really important to understand this framework. Um, Jesus is king. Um, that is one of the primary themes from beginning to the end of scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. There's another theme that goes with that, which is, uh, um, it, it's under the umbrella of a marriage. And so a bride and bridegroom. King and bridegroom are arguably the, the two most prevalent images of our relationship to and Jesus' relationship with us. And, and I think it's really important for us to understand those things in order to understand our intimacy and our identity. And so this morning, I want to look at particularly the picture that Scripture, from the very beginning to the very end, paints of this marriage that God defines us in and calls us into. Um, as I said, Jesus is king, but he is not just a king. He is a betrothed king or an engaged king. And soon he will be a married king. Now, to whom he is, who is he betrothed to? Well, it is the bride. We, we hear the bride of Christ in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's incredible images of God as husband and Israel as his, his bride. Uh, and so one of the things that we need to recognize as we walk through this image is that the bride is not just one person. It is the collective family of God, those who have been redeemed, those who've been forgiven, those who've experienced salvation and forgiveness from Jesus Christ. They, are, they compose the bride. And so when we're talking about the bride in Scripture, it is us, those who have come to Christ for salvation. And so while that might be, that's kind of the one thing that's a little bit hard sometimes to get our minds wrapped around, uh, but, but that's, that's what we have to understand as we walk into it. So the bride are the people of God from every race, nation, tribe, and tongue. That's what we think of as the church. And so the bride of Christ is not just those of us in here who maybe look like you and talk like you and think like you, but it's also people who are very different from you all over in neighborhoods surrounding our church, across the ocean, in other countries all over. And so that is those who have come to Christ for salvation, that is the bride of Christ. And so that's the people of God who the bridegroom is and has been pursuing since the beginning of humanity. And so Jesus came to die, and his death was essentially the dowry, the payment for his bride, that which was required. And, and so he will come again to, to marry her to, to final conclusion. And, and this will hopefully, as we walk through this morning, this will become clear. So just bear with me as we walk through scripture and we start to like put pegs in place. So right now, Jesus is at work through the Holy Spirit and by his word, purifying his bride, us, and beautifying her, us, for himself and for our joy. So today I want to kind of make this framework that that I'll just I'll just be honest, it 
this, this thinking and seeing scripture in this light, which isn't new, it's not a new thing, it's not, a, it's not something that is a secret thing, it's so clearly bled all over the pages of scripture, but thinking now this way has made me have to change almost everything in my life. And, and so I want to I wanna share that with you because I don't want to have to change my life alone. So, um, so you can do that too. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm going to be jumping around. I, literally, I'm going to go from Genesis to Revelation. So if you want to try to keep up, um, but I would really recommend that you go online and download kind of my, my outline so that that'll kind of give you references and kind of a little bit to, to be helpful. I, I would encourage you as you go out of here, not just the next week, but, but begin to look at scripture through the lens of marriage and the marriage covenant. And seek this out and, and better define yourself through this because I think that's really important. From the very beginning at creation, this first kind of point of creation when God created humanity in the world, um, Genesis chapter one, I'm gonna read just a couple verses from there. Genesis 126, it says that, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and over the livestock of all the earth and over every creeping things. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So God creates mankind in his own image. So man is the same as God, but also unique and distinctly different from God, right? We are like God in that we bear his image. We are image bearers and that's different than anyone else. His spiritual creation, the, the, the spiritual beings God created, his spiritual, his, fam, his heavenly family does not bear his image. So we, we don't get that from scripture. The animals don't bear his image. Humankind alone bear his image. So we are like him, but we are different as well because of how he created us. Then in, in, in Genesis 2, 7, it says, then the Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So there's two things here that God not only created and stamped his image on us, but he also gave us life from his breath. So we are like God in, in, in that we share his image, but we are unlike God that we, our breath doesn't give life. And we were created. We were formed out of dust and he breathed into us and stamped us with his image. And so that's something that is really important for us to recognize and understand that we are like, but different. Now, jumping into Genesis 2.18, here's, here's what I want you to catch and maybe see this from a slightly different lens than maybe you've seen it before because Genesis 2.18 seems like it's just a, a job that God gave Adam uh, that, that would, would take up part of a day. And so it says, then the Lord said, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And when in, in the Hebrew, in, in Genesis, when it says the help, I will make a helper for him. It's not like I'm gonna make a little helper uh, it's not like someone, you know, like he's going to be uh, way more intelligent and sharper than this person. This is kind of his little lackey. Um, that's not what it is. It is a helpmate, someone who will bring some degree of completion to this creation. And so, and so then, then God kind of brings Adam and, and God and Adam are there in the garden and Adam, God brings all the creatures of the field and all the beasts and all the birds and all that kind of stuff. And he brings them before Adam and Adam names everything. And, and so then at the end of that, it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Why? Because nothing in that group was like him. Nothing had his image. Nothing was like him and would not fit for him. And so, and so it says that, that nothing, was, nothing was found. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up with flesh. The rib that God had taken, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And so here's, here's what happens is that God then takes and, and catch what's happening here. God takes out of man and makes woman who is the same as man, but completely different. Do you see what's happening here? God created mankind in his image, so he's like God, but different than God. God wanted to find a helper for Adam, and so God took out of Adam and made woman who is like man. Woman is like man, but is completely different. And so God, really what he's doing here, God invited Adam into his own desire and longing for a bride. God invited Adam into his own desire and longing for a bride. We ask the question, why did God create humanity? I mean, that's a great question, but I think one of the, one of the, one of the things that makes a lot of sense from scripture and the character of God is this. God created everything. God created spiritual beings and they serve him. He doesn't pursue them with love. He's not given himself up for them. God wanted someone, something like him, but different from him, that he could love and take as a bride. And and there in the garden, God brings Adam and he shares that with Adam. So Adam now has this longing for something and brings him into it. And so as, as this kind of develops, the imagery of a wedding and a marriage is where scripture starts. The very beginning. A groom and a bride. A groom longing for a bride, relationship, intimacy. The difference between God and every other religious notion of a deity is that God wants a relationship with his people. He does not want people just as employees or servants. He wants relationships. That's why he brings Adam into this. And so God begins to make this picture of this marriage. Here's the thing. Being married as human men and women is not the highest goal for us. The highest goal for us, the reason that God has designed and created marriage is to point us to what we are created for, a picture of what is infinitely greater. It's not about you and I getting married, but it is about you and I recognizing the depth of intimacy with God that he desires with us. Marriage is the shadow of, of what God wants with us and is infinitely more that we are suitable for God. Just like when God says in the garden with Adam that they didn't find something suitable, this, this, blows, this kind of blows my mind, you are suitable for God. And, and, so, and so he starts at this place and he kind of gives this picture of marriage and I think one of the things, and so then we get from Genesis and, and we, we see this development of God going out and finding a bride, Israel. So from Genesis 2 all the way to like Genesis 12 is where God is looking for a bride and he finds a bride in, in Abraham and he says, you will be my people. And then when we get to the prophets, if you read the prophets, what you'll see is the prophets use primarily marriage covenant language. They talk about faithfulness and unfaithfulness. In the prophets, the relationship between God and Israel, God's people, is expressed in the context of marriage. Uh, the, the, the book of Hosea is a, great, is a great book that really you see the, the prophets repeating the things that Hosea says. And if you're not familiar with Hosea, prophet of God, and God says, Hosea, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go and take a wife. She's a prostitute. Her name's Gomer. And, and I want you to take her. And I just want you to know, you are going to get married to her and she's going to be unfaithful. But I want you to do that anyway. 
because I need to communicate my love and my relationship to my people. And so, so Hosea goes and he, he takes Gomer and, and sure enough, she's unfaithful. And you read the, the, the book of Hosea and you can kind of read through all of that stuff and you see that they have some kids together and like God tells her to name their second child, a little girl, uh, a Hebrew name that means no mercy. And God's saying, I will not have mercy on my people because of their unfaithfulness. And so in Hosea, God himself declares himself to be the husband the bridegroom of Israel and Israel and Judah's unfaithfulness because they keep chasing other gods just like Gomer chases other men. Again, God's relationship with Israel in the prophets is set in a marriage covenant that is being broken time after time after time after time. The prophets all continue in this context, pointing them back, pointing us back to Genesis, the idea of a wedding and a marriage and a marriage relationship. God is the groom and his people are the bride. You see, the prophets as a whole, this is what they testify to. They testify to the fact that God, the bridegroom, will not divorce or put away his bride, even in her unfaithfulness, even when God has good and legal cause to divorce his people. If you remember in the, in the New Testament, the, the Religious leaders are arguing with Jesus about things and divorce comes up. And they say, well, you know, Moses said we could get divorced for these reasons. And Jesus responds to them and said, yeah, divorce is permitted, but God did that for your hard hearts. You know why? Because marriage is the picture that God chose to use to identify our relationship with him. And so when Jesus said it, because of your hard hearts, because you see, Jesus is, is, knows that God would never divorce his people, even when he has legal and good cause. Uh, I, I actually think one of the reasons that the enemy is so intent on going after marriage is because marriage is that thing that God chose to image our relationship with him. So when divorces in the church are as many, if not more than in the culture, then that starts to create question of faithfulness. And so then it breeds into our thinking and says, well, if I'm unfaithful, will God divorce me? And so if the enemy can, 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 can question the, the, the forever commitment of marriage, until death do us part, then he can seep in and question God's relationship with us. Why, why again, the redefinition of marriage, why? Because, because God gave marriage for a specific purpose to show something very specific. And if we redefine it, then we can redefine our relationship with God. Or just belittle marriage to say it's just not important. And so I think, I think really, I think one of the reasons that, that the, the God-designed structure of marriage is under attack and has been under attack since the beginning is because of the way God uses the marriage covenant for his glory and to, for his people to know him. Now, here's what's interesting in um, Hosea 2 and again, the prophets aren't just all negative because they actually show God's faithfulness. So in Hosea chapter two, verse 19, God says this about his people to Hosea. He says, and I will betroth you to me forever. That's obviously marriage language, right? I will betroth to you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And listen to what he says. He says, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. That right there is God's unwavering commitment to be faithful to his bride, regardless of how unfaithful she is. 
he, he will stay there and persevere and endure. See, Isaiah concludes that Israel, based on her unfaithfulness, was separated from God. The bride was separated from the bridegroom because of their sin and their pursuit of other gods, their adultery in their spiritual adultery. But God did not serve Israel with a divorce certificate and God would woo her back to himself. God not only wouldn't divorce, but he would continue to pursue at his own peril. And so now we, we kind of get up to, to, after the prophets, we get to, to the, the Messiah, to Jesus. And so it's really interesting how Jesus, there's a development in scripture that Jesus is compared to Adam. There's a connection back and forth to that. Paul writes in Romans chapter five, he says, therefore, as, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, then he says, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And so he says, look, Adam, Adam, as he, he walked away and sin entered in and there is one who's going to make that right more powerful than the sin that Adam, that Adam caused. He says, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? And then in Romans chapter five, uh, <clears throat> verse 12, or no, sorry, in, Ro in, in 1 Corinthians actually 15, uh, Paul writes, for as for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And finally, in, in, later in that passage in verse 45, Paul writes, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus is the last Adam, was a life-giving spirit. And, and then, and then he, and he, and he goes on and kind of develops that. But, but basically what, what Paul does in, in the New Testament about Jesus, he again looks back to Genesis 1 and 2 and Adam. And that whole marriage picture. So Jesus is the new second final Adam who has the same ache in his side for his bride. It's the same thing. And so Jesus willingly comes to lay down his life. See, God already essentially owned humanity because he created them and stamped them with his image. But now Jesus comes and buys them a second time. It's like the father went out to find a bride for his son and he paid the family and then, and then he has to pay them again because they went back on, the, on their agreement. And, and so Jesus comes to pursue the wayward bride and buy her back a second time. In John chapter three, uh, John writes, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And, and he writes this because this is what, this is what uh, John the Baptist was saying when, when he was baptizing and identifying who Jesus is. John says, the one who has the bridegroom, the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the bridegroom for the bride, the people of God. And Jesus, when arguing with the Pharisees about whether or not his, his disciples fast, Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. So we see Jesus comes as a bridegroom to buy back the bride. Now I wanna pause here for a second before we get into the rest of, and get, get into the rest of scripture up to Revelation because I think there's something that's a key, almost like a, you know, like 
<clears throat> the old school cereal boxes that had like the little red-ish writing on the back that you couldn't read, that you needed some kind of glasses to see and, and read that. I feel like this is a bit of a decoder for what we hear Jesus say, and it makes a ton of sense once we hear it. Is anyone familiar with a traditional, like ancient Jewish wedding? There are three parts to a Jewish marriage, a wedding. The first part is the sudukin which is a time of mutual commitment. So basically during this time, it's when the father of the groom goes out to find and identify and purchase a bride for a son. And I know that to our ears, that sounds terrible, but just kind of bear with it here for a second because it does, it, it makes sense. And so the father of the groom goes out, finds a bride, makes a deal with her family and pays them. And so now she is going to be the bride for his son. So the legal arrangements are made to begin what is the second part called the erusin, which is the betrothal period. The betrothal period in a Jewish wedding is give or take a year long. And, and during that time of about a year, the couple, the bride and bridegroom, they are legally married but they do not live together, nor have they had any kind of sexual relationship at this point. So it's, it's, the, it's the point that like Mary and Joseph were in when Mary was found pregnant and Joseph was surprised because they're not living together. They're not seeing each other. He hears that she's pregnant. And during this betrothal period, the, the, the bridegroom could offer a certificate of divorce to the bride if it seemed she was unfaithful during that period. Now, during this roughly year period of time, both the groom and the bridegroom had responsibilities. The, the, the bridegroom actually was, during this year, he was preparing a place for his bride. He would go to prepare a place for her. During this year, the, the, bride, the bride actually was focused on her personal preparations, her wedding garments, her making sure her lamps were full, all these other preparations. She was focused on being ready for the day and the hour of the wedding. Now, here's what's interesting. In this context, no one knew when the day or the hour of the final wedding was. Do you know who knew? The father of the groom. He set the day and the hour of the wedding. And he only told the son on the day that it was, and then the son would show up with a bridal procession with all kinds of noise and music, and the bride was supposed to be ready. So for give or take a year, the bride was preparing to receive the groom that he would take her and take her to the place that he's prepared for her. How many of you women are like, yeah, that's how a wedding should go? <laughs> like, I feel like that kind of takes the heat off you guys because like you just, I mean, you just have to be ready. You're not actually, you don't have the day that's the groom's father. And, and I don't know, but it just seems nuts to me. But, but that's what they were doing. And so for, for that reason that no one knew but the father, for that reason, the bride had to be ready for when the groom showed up. So her oil lamps, she always had to have oil for her oil lamps just in case it happened at night. She had to be focused. She couldn't be off doing other things. Or like when he shows up, is she off somewhere traveling? Like all of those things were really key. So for that time period that she didn't really know exactly how long it was, she was focused on preparing herself, purifying herself, and being ready for the groom to show up. And then the last part, that third part is uh, basically the marriage where the groom with all the fanfare and noise and romance carries the bride home. It's where they receive a blessing, they finalize their vows, they consummate the marriage, and they have this huge wedding feast for days. Now, knowing what the people of Israel knew and experienced Think about what Jesus said in his ministry. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. What is he saying? He's saying, we are in the second period of a wedding. 
and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Remember when uh, <clears throat> the disciples asked Jesus, um, when, when is the kingdom coming? And Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, not even the son, but who did Jesus say knows? Only the father. That's identical to what that Jewish wedding is. Jesus says only the father knows and he will tell the son and the son will return to take his bride to the place that he's prepared. And, and, and so, and so we, we, it's really important that we recognize there is so much marital covenant talk in scripture that we don't recognize because we're not familiar with what they were familiar with. And, and, so, and so we move on to, to the church. So post-Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension into heaven. We get into the New Testament. And you know, one of those passages that um, is the passage that defines uh, marriage and husbands and wives, Ephesians chapter five. And we look at Ephesians chapter five and what Paul says and we say, okay, well, wives submit, uh, husbands uh, love their wives and, and lead and all that. Here's what's interesting. Paul himself says, my point is not roles of husbands and wives. That can be part of our takeaways from Ephesians chapter five. But that's not what Paul was saying. Listen to what he writes. And, and, and you kind of think through this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is Paul's main point of talking about this in Ephesians 5? His main point, maybe a sub point, but not his main point. His main point is not about the roles of husbands and wives. His main point is he says right there, this is a profound mystery and I am saying it refers to Christ in the church. So basically what he's saying here is that, look, I need you to understand that your relationship with Jesus is that of a bride and a bridegroom and it always has been since Genesis 1. And so Paul brings us back to Genesis 1 and 2, but look, looks forward in this time to Revelation like 19, where it says, then I heard, and we just sang this, but just remember, this isn't just a song lyrics. This is what John writes. And he says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has been made ready, has, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see, during this time of preparation for the, the bridegroom coming back is we have a responsibility as the bride to prepare ourselves, to make ready ourselves. We participate with what the Holy Spirit is doing. He empowers us, but we are called to prepare ourselves for the coming of the bridegroom. You see, we, the space and time that we inhabit is that, that second stage in a Jewish wedding, the betrothal period. Now remember that the betrothal period, they're married. They just haven't moved in together yet. We belong to Jesus. We are his bride and we are married to Jesus if we've, if we've received forgiveness of sin and salvation through his death and resurrection. But we're not living in the place that he's prepared for us yet. 
The parable that Jesus tells that most identifies where we are is in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the 10 virgins. And he says that a kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. What does that mean? He's saying that five of them really took that preparation and being ready at all times for the bridegroom and five of them didn't. They weren't focused on the face of the bridegroom. And so then it goes on and it says, for the foolish took their lamps and no oil with them. But the wise took their flasks of oil. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then Jesus goes on to tell a parable and he says that the foolish virgins were like, well, give us some of your oil. And the, the, the wise ones were like, well, we, we won't have enough for ourselves. We, we've been preparing and being purified for this moment. And, and the others, so, so the conclusion to the story is that, is that as they were going to buy more oil, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. After the others came and said, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he said, truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That, that parable that Jesus tells is for us. <laughs> and the question that, that I come from that is, is this, uh, has the church, have we taken Jesus seriously as the bridegroom? Have we just made a life for ourselves here and we're kind of waiting for Jesus to come back, but we're not prepared for him to come back? We're not, we're not purifying, we're not, we're not being purified, we're not being prepared, and we're not fully focused. Everything we do ladders up to him who's coming. Are we living our lives alert and preparing ourselves for his coming? It's interesting. We, we live our lives today as if Jesus is going to perfect us when we see him face to face. But what Jesus says is that during my lifetime of following him, I am preparing myself for his return and he is purifying me. It doesn't come later. I'm never gonna be perfect before I see Jesus, but I will be in a process of being purified. So as I've been processing this, the time that I live in, the time that you live in, it's that betrothal period that we don't know. I don't know when he's coming, but what am I supposed to be doing? Preparing myself for him and being purified. Joining him in inv inviting all of those from, uh, from down the street to every tribe and tongue and nation to be part of this bride, this global bride. And so the question that I had to ask myself is this, has the church, have we chosen to spend our time before the wedding feast playing and partying as if our betrothal is one long bachelor party, bachelorette party? Because I think that might describe a lot of how we live. And so then what we see in scripture is after this time of betrothal, we see a wedding. Revelation 19 verse seven says this, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Revelation 21 says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Listen to the words that John uses coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Finally, a celebration with the bride and groom together forever. See, today we have lots, we put lots of energy and lots of conversation in, in like identity. 
Like what, what is your identity? How do you define yourself? Here's the thing. From the very beginning, God has revealed our identity and our intimacy. From the very beginning, God says, you are my bride. That is my identity. I'm the bride of Christ. I am in a, a time right now. Like everyone is born for that. God creates everyone for that. Not everyone is willing to submit to that or to choose to receive the incredible love. Look at, look at the love that we see throughout the Old and the New Testament Let, that people sometimes say like the New Testament is grace, the Old Testament is works or is wrath. But God says, and his whole point in the prophets is, I will be faithful to you regardless of your unfaithfulness. His love is so deep and so wide and so profound and so enduring. And, and, so, and so God has revealed our identity and our intimacy. Our identity, we are his bride. And our intimacy is with him. That's why we keep coming back to intimacy with Jesus, intimacy with Jesus. You can't hear that enough. Because that is who God has, has, has designed us to be. I think it's interesting that we are called bride, not wife. And we'll just get into some like more modern jokes, but not really jokes. You know how people talk about that, you know, you date someone and you're all romantic and all that until you get married. Then you can like back off on that because you've, you know, clinched the deal, right? See, God calls us his bride because we are the object of his affection, not a life of transactional roles and agreements between two people. He says, you are my bride and you are what I've longed for. Doesn't make God imperfect, but he wants relationship with us. He wants that intimacy with us. God pursues us and calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is lived out as a response to his wooing us as, his, as the object of his affection and longing. So we live in that betrothal period, don't we? That's where we live. Whether you want to say you live there or not, you do. All of us do. So Jesus is now preparing a place for us and we are focused on preparing ourselves for and being ready for when he shows up. Like you can't not see this in the Bible. It's everywhere. We know that a time is coming near, but we don't know the day or the time we are just supposed to be ready. We live, as I said, in that parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25. And the demand of that parable, Jesus tells, is that I am ready for the groom's arrival. Where have I aimed my heart? And here's the thing that I think is staggering. Not only do we behold Jesus, again, the author of Hebrews says, uh, Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We see over and over, we, we, we put our gaze on Christ. We behold him. But here's the crazy thing, is that we behold him in his beauty and his justice and his righteousness and his grace and his mercy and all of that. But here's the thing. If you think of a wedding, there's a moment in a wedding where regardless of how the marriage goes or how dumb or smart or accomplished or whatever the, the people are that are getting married. There's a moment where typically the, the bride is at the end of an aisle or a, or a row, typically with a father or a father figure, and there's a groom with an officiant at the head. And there's a moment where the groom sees the bride and there is a look on his face that cannot be reproduced. And that is how Jesus looks at you. Jesus beholds us. 
And in that same moment of this overwhelming joy in the groom's heart, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. You know what that joy set before Jesus was? Him beholding you as his bride prepared and purified and presented to him. See, this, this is the Maranatha cry. Come, Lord Jesus, not because I'm tired of life, but come, Lord Jesus, because you are the object of all my affection and all my longing and all my desire. I just want to be with you. So how do we live in a manner that we're prepared, purified, and ready for the king, groom, Jesus to arrive? And Jesus says it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we are going to be looking at over the next few weeks. How we, as the bride, prepare and are purified. Now, I don't know about you, but but if it's true that our responsibility, our lives are, are supposed to be preparing ourselves for Christ and being purified. And as Jesus, the groom said before he left to make disciples of all nations, then the question is, does my life look like that? Or do I have to radically change how I live? and how I use my resources, and how I think. Because if you are in fact the bride, and he's the bridegroom, there's consequence to that. We're gonna share communion. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting in Ephesians chapter five that Paul says, he says, he says uh, about Jesus' work in the lives of his people. He says, for, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Communion is so many things. Primarily is to remember what Jesus did. But also, <laughs> communion is preparation and purification. Because Jesus takes the bread, which would be sustenance, would sustain people. And he says, this is my body that was broken for you. Remember as you eat it. And what he's saying there is provision for you. I'm preparing you for what you need to do. And you look at my body and know that you are part of that. So let's take the bread together. And then Jesus takes the cup. And what's wild about that is the cup. He says, this is the blood that washes clean. You're purified through the shedding of my blood. In splendor, spotless, without blemish, because of the blood of Jesus. Let's take that together. My prayer for our church is that no matter the cost, we would be a people who are prepared for Jesus and purified for Jesus. And that's uncomfortable and that means adjustment at best for everyone. 
But church, we are the bride, the object of Jesus' affection and his desire and his longing. That's who we are. And he loves us. If you don't know that Jesus, that God loves you after looking at scripture today, I don't know what it'll take. Jesus wants to behold you, to fix his eyes on you as the joy that is set before him. Jesus, I thank you. I don't even know that words, <laughs> these words fall short. I just want to say thank you. Jesus, I want to be prepared and I want your spirit to purify me and I want to care about everyone who's far from you. And I want to spend the oil in my lamp becoming that vision of joy that you saw. So just help us to be the bride adorned in splendor without blemish, without spot. With people from every nation and tribe and tongue. God, may we be a people who are a united bride. God, sometimes I feel like the church acts more like a bunch of sister wives than a bride. God, let us not be that, but be a bride united in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.